All right, thank you everyone for humoring me and moving up. It really does help me as a teacher to be able to, to see your faces. Um, let me pray for us and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word now, we pray for open hearts and open ears as we learn about this important uh, topic of money. We pray, Lord, that you would help this time to be fruitful, that it would be practical, and ultimately it would be honoring to Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. All right. So we're talking tonight about the stewardship of money. As you guys have all know, uh, we've been going through a series on stewardship uh, throughout the summer. And this is actually the second to last uh, lesson in that series. So tonight we're going to be talking about the stewardship of money. Once again, stewardship, um, God calls us to be good stewards or good managers of what he has entrusted to us in this life. And when I think about the topic of stewardship, I automatically think about this topic of money. It really is the classic topic of stewardship. And in order to set our uh, hearts tonight, I want us to actually turn to Luke chapter 12, and this will really set the foundation of our time tonight. Luke chapter 12, so everyone, please turn there. And we're going to learn about uh, the parable um, of the rich fool, the parable of the rich fool. Luke chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 13. 13 says, someone in the crowd said to him, him being Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me an judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I look in this room, and um, virtually probably none of you guys know this, but when I was young, I did a little bit of kung fu. Um, nothing serious. I was like kindergarten, so like five or six years old, and my parents sent me to kung fu class. And I was young, and I don't really remember too much of what we did there, but one of the activities that we did that I remember was actually sparring. Um, so we would spar. We would fight each other. We would try to punch and kick each other. And of course, we always had, you know, protective gear on. We had our helmet, our gloves, and everything just to protect ourselves. Um, but the instruction that I do remember when we would spar is our instructor would always tell us to keep your hands up, right? Keep your arms up. Be on your guard because you don't know whenever your opponent is going to try to punch you or kick you. And when we did, when we had our guard up and we were ready to receive those blows, we usually did pretty well. Well, tonight, in Jesus, when he's talking to us here in verse 15, he gives us a central warning and a central command similar to what my instructor gave to us. He says, in verse 15, he says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. He says to be on your guard that we need to keep our hands up and guard ourselves, or guard ourselves against the constant temptation of coveting or loving money or greed. And why? Well, he says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And these are one of, this is one of the, the zingers, that, the sentences of Christ that we should really memorize, right? That life is not about gathering more wealth. It's not about gathering more possessions. And then Jesus, he goes on into the parable, and he explains uh, about a man who loved money, who was covetous. Verse 16 says, and he told a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. 
I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Notice in this story that at the beginning, uh, this is about a man who was already rich. He already had more than what he needed, but then he was blessed, or maybe you can say he was cursed, with the abundance in crop. And so with this newfound wealth, he decided he wanted to save it up, and so he wanted to build larger barns to store up all of these new possessions and all of this new treasure that he got. And then he talked to himself and he said, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. I don't know about you, that sounds pretty good to me. That sounds like exactly what I want to do with my money. I want to relax. I want to, you know, sit at home on my couch and watch TV and watch movies. Right? I want to go and, on vacations. You know, I want to go back to Hawaii and sit on the beach and sip drinking my mango smoothie. I want to eat. I want to go to nice restaurants. I want to try different cuisines. I want different experiences. I want to wine and dine with my friends. I want to order DoorDash every night so I don't have to cook or clean up. That's what I want to do. And I definitely want to be merry. I want to have fun. I want to do activities. And I want to pay for those activities, or not have to worry about paying for those activities. And so when I look at that, eat, drink, be merry, relax, my soul wants that. But look at how God describes that type of thinking. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God calls this type of thinking foolish. See, this man, even though he had so many possessions, so much treasure, he was going to lose it all that very night because he was going to die. And so God calls this foolish, the type of thinking where we should prioritize our money for relaxing, eating, and drinking. But if you're like me, and you're like this rich man, and you're tempted to think that this is what money is for, Jesus is telling you tonight to put your guard up, to guard yourself against the love of money and instead to focus on our priority, which is found in verse 21, to be rich toward God, to be a good steward with what God has blessed us with and to be good managers of our money. And so we need to develop our biblical view of money. And that's our goal for tonight, to develop a biblical view of money. And I've split up our lesson tonight in two major parts. The first one, we're going to talk about contentment versus the love of money. We're going to examine scripture to see what it says about fighting against covetousness or greed or the love of money. And then number two, we're going to get practical. And we're going to look at scripture to see the different ways that God tells us to use our money. And we're going to take a look at five ways that God tells us to prioritize our money. And it's what we'll learn there is that it's not wrong for us to try to relax and eat and drink and be merry. Uh, it's just those things are not the priority. And so, let's get started. Number one, we're going to talk about contentment versus the love of money. So please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. It says, Paul, 
writing to his protege, uh, Timothy. And he's talking about false teachers here, but it definitely applies to us here. 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, through, uh, verse 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So right off the bat, in verse 6, uh, God gives us this equation, I'll call it, right? Where God, godliness plus contentment equals great gain. So he tells us once again that the priority of our life is to pursue godliness, to pursue the things of God, obedience, righteousness, holiness. Our life is not about pursuing our career. It's not about making as much money as possible. It's not about traveling to everywhere you can or experiencing all the different foods or restaurants that you can, that you can have. But it's about godliness. But not only that, right? In this verse, he tells us that godliness needs to be coupled, needs to be paired with contentment. That means being satisfied, being happy in all circumstances. We'll see that this is the opposite of being greedy. It's the opposite of loving money. And so Paul says in verse 6, when you put these two things together, godliness, pursuing the things of God, and you put it together with contentment, this is great gain. That these two things together is a greater blessing than any money that you could ever have. It's better than hitting the lottery, right? It's better than getting a promotion or getting that high-paying job you want. It's better than your company having a successful IPO. It's better than getting a big holiday bonus. And it's better than retiring with wealth. If you truly want a life that is full of God's blessing, pursue godliness and pursue godliness with contentment. It is great gain. And he explains a little bit of why. In verse 7, he tells us that everything that money can buy is temporary. He talks about, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. Uh, When you're born, you have nothing. You literally have nothing. No clothes, nothing. You're born with nothing. And guess what? When you die, you take nothing with you. And so every single thing in this life that you earn or that you make, you can't bring it with you. Your house, your possessions, your vacations, your your money, all of these things will fade. Uh, It's been well said that everything that you earn in this life, every single thing, Every single thing will eventually be squandered away by your children or by their children, or it's going to be thrown into the dump. Every single thing will be thrown away, every single thing that you work for. And so we need to put that in context for our life, that everything in this world is temporary. Not only that, in verse 8, he actually tells us what the standard of contentment is, right? Because, hey, you know, even though we're going to lose everything, we still need something to live by, right? We need something to, to, to satisfy our needs. Well, Paul actually tells us what the standard of contentment is in verse 8. And he says, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So the standard of contentment is just food and clothing. And looking out once again, I see that everyone here uh, looks well-fed to me. I don't see any naked people here. You guys have both food and clothing. And so by God's standard, by biblical standards, every single one of us should be content. Every single one of us. And every single, every other thing in this life is luxury. It's gravy. Right? You have a nice house to, 
sleep in, right? You have multiple changes of clothes, right? You know where your next meal is going to come from. All of that is luxury. And so we all should be content. And the amazing thing is that Scripture is consistent in this because the very things that we need to be content, food and clothing, those are the exact things that God promises to give to you. Immediately after the parable of the rich fool, Jesus gives his famous discourse about not being anxious in this life, to do, to, for us to not worry. He talks about the ravens. He talks about how they don't work, but God feeds them. He talks about the grass of the field and how they're clothed with lilies. And then he says in verse 29 of chapter 12, Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seeks after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Once again, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Again, once again, our priority is the kingdom of God. It's godliness. It's pursuing him and living in obedience and righteousness. And all these things, food, clothing, God will give to us. And so... As we talk about money, we need to be content, and that's where we start. Um, but as we continue in this passage, in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, he contrasts contentment with the love of money. So moving on to verse 9, we're going to talk about the love of money. Paul says in verse 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse 10 is a famous verse in Scripture, but it's also very much misquoted. Um, a lot of times people read this or people try to quote this and they, they say that money is the root of all evil. Um, but it's missing a lot of those key words, right? Money itself, there's nothing inherently wrong with it, right? It's a tool. It, it's a medium that God gives to us to, to purchase things that we need in this life. But the verse says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And so what's made very clear here in this passage is that money itself, the love of money, has spiritual power over your heart. Money has spiritual power over your heart. And if you do not master your money, and instead you love money and you pursue being rich, money will master you. <clears throat> it says here that, that money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And what it's describing here, and you can imagine, right, is that the love of money, it's like a tree, Right? At the root of that tree is your love for money, it's your greed, it's your covetousness. But out of that tree grows different branches, and different branches are different evils that could come about from your love of money. And in this passage, you'll see it up on the slide, that there are several of these branches mentioned. In verse 9, it talks about falling into temptation and into a snare. It talks about that the love of money itself is not just a sin, but it leads to other sins. It also says in verse 9 that the love of money leads into many senseless and harmful desires. The love of money makes you dumb, makes you stupid, makes you foolish. That's what the love of money does, right? I've seen, I've, and we've seen it, right? I've seen people who are addicted to, to gambling, right? They, they buy 
lottery tickets or scratchers or they do sports betting, right? And it doesn't make any sense. It's foolish. You're always going to lose money. Well, they do it anyways in hopes to be getting rich. Or people, take, people put in their money into risky investments and they lose everything. The love of money also causes divorces. It's either the first or the second top reason why couples get divorced. It's because they love money and they can't agree on what to buy and where to put their money. And so they fight and they bicker until these people who once loved each other, they cared, cared about each other deeply, uh, they end up hating each other. That's senseless. That's dumb. And even something that I've become more accustomed to as I've heard more stories is that money also destroys families. A lot of times there's like this family inheritance and it might be small, it might be large, but what happens is when the patriarch or the matriarch passes away, the siblings, they fight against each other. They love that money, they want that money. And once again, a loving family gets destroyed. Senseless, foolish, dumb. That's what the love of money does. But another branch of evil that comes out from this love of money is in verse 10 when Paul says that it causes people to wander away from the faith. It causes people to lose their salvation. And I think about our group here in Join Heirs, the college and career group, and sadly, right, I've seen this happen, and you probably have too, where your friends, they seem like they're Christians, right? They profess loving Christ. And yet when they go off to college or they start their career, they start to lose interest in spiritual things, and they might use the excuse. They might say, well, you know what? I've got to go study for an exam, and so, you know, I can't come to church on Sunday, or I've got to finish my project. They start skipping fellowship. They start, stop, they, they start skipping church, and all of a sudden, they're gone. Same thing with careers. You see it happen all the time where people, they say they're pursuing their career, and they need to work, and so they can't come on Sundays. They can't come on Fridays to, to fellowship. They can't serve in any ways. And once again, they're gone. And what it often boils down to is a love of money. They want that career. They want that paycheck. They feel like they need it. And so they wander away from the faith. And as the verse says, they pierce themselves with many pangs. They'll experience pain either in this life or certainly in the life to come. But the scary thing for us is when I think about the love of money, the scary thing is for most of us, it's not a question of if you love money. The question is how. How does your love of money manifest itself in your life? Maybe you're poor, you don't have that much, and so you want to be rich and you, because you think that money will make all of your problems go away. Or maybe you're rich in this life. And money is your idol. It's your source of pride and identity, and so you want to hold on to it. Or maybe you love money because all of the stuff that it can buy and you're consumed with materialism, shopping, traveling. Or you're prideful, and your money is the way that you can brag and to show off all of these things that you can buy. Or maybe you're like me, and you love money because it helps you to feel secure. It makes you feel like you can do anything in this life and nothing bad can happen because you got money. Or maybe you're just lazy and selfish and you want money so you could sit around and do nothing. You can relax. Or maybe your love of money manifests itself in you being cheap. You would never spend your money on others. You would never give to the poor. You don't give to church. Maybe that's how your love of money manifests itself. Verse 10 
talks about this love of money, and I like the word that it uses. It says it is through this craving. It's craving. Uh, that's, this is a strong desire to be satisfied, and it gnaws at your soul. But the thing about the love of money is that even though you crave it and even though you get more and more money throughout your life, it never truly satisfies, satisfies because once again, every single thing in this life that money can buy will go away. Rust and moth will destroy these things, but instead, we need to be pursuing godliness with contentment. That's how we can be truly satisfied in this life. And so, that's contentment versus the love of money, and this is really the foundation for us. Um, As we talk about uh, number two now, the biblical usage of money. This really is the time in our lives when we're just starting out in our careers, uh, when we're in college, to really to build a good foundation, a good understanding for what the Bible says about money. Uh, Once again, uh, there's nothing wrong about money in and of itself, even though, yes, the love of money is wrong. But Scripture also has many biblical principles, much wisdom for us to glean about how to use our money in a God-honoring way. And so what I've done is I've actually adapted a, a lesson from one of the, uh, from one of the elders uh, from my former church, and I thought it was very helpful for me, and I've adapted it for us tonight. Uh, but what this man did, Chris, um, what he did was that he looked throughout the whole Bible, and he looked about every single thing that God tells us to use our money for, and actually came up with a list, just five things of what you should do with your money. Uh, just five things. Some of you are surprised. Maybe you thought it was more. Some of you thought it was less. But we're going to talk about the five things that God tells us to spend our money on. And really, this is the priority for us. So number one, save for the future. Save for the future. Um, In the beginning of the book of Proverbs in verse 6, excuse me, Proverbs chapter 6, Solomon, he looks to the ants. Uh, Chapter 6, and I'll start actually in verse 6, he says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief or officer or ruler, verse 8 says, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. And so there's this, uh, there's this wisdom, there's this principle here that the ants, they save, right? They save in one season, season when bread is plentiful in summer. Um, or prepares her bread in summer, right? And then uh, the ant gathers it um, in the harvest. And so there's this idea that the ants are saving and they're planning for the future. Um, This is a point of wisdom for us as well, to make preparations for the future and to save. Just like a farmer who sows a seed in one season to reap for the next, we should be doing the same. If there's a big purchase um, that you need to make, even retirement in the future, it's wise to save. Um, Proverbs 13, 11 says, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, um, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. And so it's wise to save a little bit, or at least a little bit of what you earn, little by little. And in the future, when you need that money, when you're old, for example, you'll have that money to, to fall back on. And so it's wise to save uh, for the future. Um, but I will say that we always have to balance saving with trusting in God's provision and pursuing contentment. Remember, it's, it's sinful to worry about the future. It's sinful to be anxious about the future. God will provide. 
And saving should not be motivated by an anxiety or distrust in God's provision for you. Um, it's sinful to trust in your riches and to think that it will somehow give you security in your life. Um, once again, we need to be content, right? It's not a discontentment that motivates um, our saving. Um, instead, we're motivated by wisdom, that this is a wise thing to do. And so when we say we do need to check our heart, that we're not motivated by our own greed. And so application for us is absolutely to save for the future. As I mentioned before, this would include you know, saving for retirement, for the time when you won't be able to work. It's wise to save in those retirement accounts, right? Your 401ks, your 403bs, your IRAs. Those are all good things to learn about if you don't know what they are and to save. And I should have said it in the beginning, but, you know, for these practical items, uh, if you're not sure, you know, how to, what, what these things are, or really you want to get really practical in how to uh, spend your money, feel free to talk to me. Feel free to talk to especially the, the olders, uh, older individuals here in Joint Heirs or even older people in the church. And we can get really practical in applying these uh, biblical principles. Um, but once again, saving for the church, um, excuse me, saving for the future. Um, this includes, you know, saving for big purchases down the road. Perhaps you want to purchase your own home uh, in the future, uh, or there's a large donation that you want to make. It's wise to, to save. Uh, I also believe that saving for the future includes um, investing wisely, investing wisely and, and doing it responsibly, right? Investing responsibly in things like the stock market, bonds, money market accounts, real estate. Um, of course, there's some know-how that you need to have to invest in these things, but I believe that if we do it responsibly, taking responsible risks, uh, not trying to get rich overnight or quickly, these are ways that we can honor God and be a good steward by acting responsibly with the money that we have. So that's number one, to save for the future. Uh, number two is to provide for yourself and your family and we actually talked about this quite a bit when I uh, gave my lesson on work, and so I'm not going to talk too much in detail uh, about this, but just to remind you what 2 Thessalonians 3.10 uh, says, there's this principle um, that's found there that's helpful for us. Verse 10 says, for even when we were with you, we would, uh, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some, of you, some, some among you walk in idleness. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And so, I said it before, I'm going to say it again, right? The principle that's found in Scripture is if you don't work, you don't eat. That each one of us, we should be using the money that we earn at work to pay for our own living expenses. And I'll say it again, right? That if you're, if you're living at home, and I have nothing against people living at home with your parents. But I would encourage you once again to have that conversation and offer to pay for your own living expenses. It's something that every Christian should be doing. Number three, the third way that God tells us to use our money is to pay your taxes, to pay uh, your taxes. Uh, I'll be the first one to tell you that uh, we pay a lot of taxes, like a lot of taxes. Uh, there's federal income tax. Uh, there's Social Security tax, uh, there's Medicare tax, there's California income tax, and that's all before you even get your paycheck, right? All of that gets taken out already. And then if you want to buy something, there's sales tax. And if you want to liquidate your investments, there's capital gains tax. 
if you own a house, there's property tax. There's gas tax. There's some places have soda tax. There's taxes that we don't even know about that we're paying. So we pay a lot of taxes. And uh, you could probably sense it in the way that I'm explaining it, but I, I don't like it. And I don't, you guys probably don't like paying taxes either. And it's especially challenging when I look at our government and really just how irresponsible a lot of this spending uh, is. Uh, they'll, they ask for billions and billions of dollars, and that can't even pay for everything the government is doing. They're increasing our national debt daily. Uh, even the government, there's so, all these different political causes that I don't agree with. In fact, a lot of these political causes are supporting downright evil. And yet that's where my tax dollars are going, and I struggle with this. I really do. Why should I pay taxes to a government that doesn't support what, what, that doesn't do what they're supposed to do, and they waste our money? Well, back in biblical times, Jesus was actually under a very similar situation. If you remember at the time when Jesus lived, he lived in Israel, but they were occupied by Rome. And Rome was a corrupt, a pagan nation. Uh, and it's for that very reason, in Matthew 22, the Pharisees come and they challenge Jesus on this topic of taxes. Matthew 22, verse 17, they say, Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought to him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So Jesus gives a very clear command when he's asked directly about taxes, if it's right to do, to pay this pagan nation. And Jesus says very clearly, to render to Caesar. Pay your taxes. And why? Well, for that, we go to Romans 13. Verse 6, it says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Um, every single government, every government that there is, is a minister of God. Um, they are, uh, uh, they're there. It's a common grace that God has made to restrain evil, to punish evil, and to protect good. And some governments do it better uh, than others, our government certainly isn't perfect, but nonetheless, it is one of God's ways that he, does, he, he uses to control evil, to restrain evil in this world. And so our taxes, even though they're not spent all the time wisely, they go towards that cause, and to pay our taxes is honoring to God. So application for us is to pay your taxes. Uh, don't lie on your tax returns. Right? Don't take any extra credits. Don't take any extra deductions that you're not supposed to. Don't fudge the numbers. If you run your own business, keep your books clean. Keep them accurate. Report all of your cash sales that you're supposed to. If you liquidate your investments, you have to declare it, right? Plan for this capital gains tax. And so, pay your taxes. And as a side note, um, it's not really the, the point of, uh, or it's not really part of this point, um, but you may get the wrong impression from me that I think you should, you know, give extra money to the government. Don't do that. <laughs> I think part of being a good steward of your money, too, right, is, is to pay what you need to, but also to be wise, right, to, to think of ways that you could reduce, you know, 
legally reduce your taxes, right? Things, once again, like paying, uh, putting money to your 401k, things like that. Those are wise, those are good things for you to do to reduce your tax burden, but still honor God by paying uh, what you need to. So number three is to pay uh, your taxes. Number four, the fourth thing that God tells us to use our money for is to pay what you owe. Pay what you owe. And here we're talking about debts. Uh, Romans 13, verse 7 says, pay to all what is owed to them. Uh, The Bible doesn't condemn debt. Uh, Some people will say differently. Some Christians will say differently. But if you look in Scripture, I don't see anywhere that God tells you that debt is evil, that debt is wrong. Uh, What God's Word does say, is found here in Romans 13, 7, to pay all what is owed to them. is if you have debt, to pay it back to them. Um, And it really is, as a Christian, it's a matter of integrity. Uh, When you get a loan, when you put yourself into debt, what you're saying to the bank or to your lender is, hey, give me money right now, and I will pay you back in time with interest. Maybe that's five years, 10 years, 30 years, but that's the agreement. That's the contract that you signed. And so as a matter of integrity, we as Christians need to honor that contract, to let our vows, uh, to, the other yes, to let our yeses uh, be yeses, to honor our vows and to pay that debt back and to pay it on time with interest. Um, so the Bible doesn't condemn debt. It's not wrong. But at the same time, if you're thinking about borrowing money, uh, scripture does give stern warnings against, uh, excuse me, gives, does give stern warnings against borrowing money. Um, got a little head there, but Proverbs 22, verse 7 says, uh, the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. The borrower is the slave of the lender. There's a warning here, right, that says that if you do decide to take out money, you do decide to take on debt, you're going to become a slave to that lender, um, some of you guys are aware, but my wife and I just uh, purchased a home. And I, I feel this verse more than I ever have before. Um, for the very first time in our marriage, we are deep in debt, like really deep in debt. We owe a lot of money right now. And I feel the effects of this verse, that now I am a slave to the bank. Um, because we own this house and we have a mortgage to pay, we have debt to pay, this debt is going to affect every single one of our financial decisions. It's going to affect the way we think about our vacations and how much leisure time we can, uh, how much money we can spend on leisure. It's going to affect how we think about our children's education, both now and the future for college. It's going to affect um, our retirement and how early we can retire. It's going to affect how much I can give. And so if you take on debt, the application that I have for you is to only take on debt after carefully considering the cost. And I hope that years later, when my wife and I, we look back and we think about all the debt that we had and all the interest that we paid because of this house, I hope we can look back and say that we did it responsibly in a God-honoring way. And for you, if you're thinking about taking on debt, you should also consider the cost. For some, you're thinking about um, you know, buying a car, taking on debt that, that way, Some of you are thinking about actually going back to college or some of you are in college right now and you are accruing that debt. Um, But if it's a decision that's still to be made, you need to think carefully about how that debt will restrict you, how that debt will make you a slave in your life. Um, If you get school debts and now it's crazy, it could be six-figure debt, it could be 
Uh, it could be crazy amounts. You have to think about how that will affect you, how that will affect your budget. Uh, if you're considering marriage in the future, uh, you have to think about how that debt will affect your marriage because not only do you become a slave to the lender, if you get married, your husband or your wife will also become a slave to the lender. It may affect things like your own purchase of a home. It'll affect where you can live. It'll affect even if you want to start a family. And once again, I'm not saying don't take on that debt. I'm not saying don't do, uh, you know, don't go back to school, but consider the cost. Is it worth it? And I know, you know, money isn't everything when considering taking on, you know, going back to school and things like that, but you want to go in with open eyes and you want to be wise. And so, that's the fourth thing. The fourth way that God tells us to use our money is to pay what you owe. But the fifth one, and I covered those quickly because I really wanted to get to this one, is number five, is to give it away. To give it away. For this, let's turn back to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. This is after the parable of the rich fool. This is after um, God, uh, Jesus tells us not to be anxious. Uh, we're actually going to pick it up in verse 31. Verse 31 says, Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that, do, that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Verse 34, for where your, heart, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Verse 34 is the focus for us. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we're reminded once again of what I said before, that money has spiritual power. Money has spiritual power. And if you look closely at this verse, I want you to look closely and to see what Jesus is not saying in this verse. He's not saying that where your heart is, what you care about is where you will put your money. Let me say it again. Jesus is not saying that what, where your heart is, what you care about, is where you'll put your money, even though that may be true. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is actually saying is that wherever you have money, wherever you put your money, that's what your heart will care about. That's where your heart will go. And this is universally true. I think for myself, I think, you know, I, I work at, I've been working at the same company for the past six years, but before that time, I don't really care at all about this company. I didn't care if its products were successful. I didn't care about the stock price. I couldn't tell you anything about their, uh, their future plans or how good of products they were. I just, I didn't really care. But once I started working for them, started getting a paycheck, all of my money virtually comes from this company, I started to really care. I care about the products that they make. I care about how much people like them. And I could tell you how much the stock is today. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it applies to eternal things as well and applies to giving. That if you place your money in the kingdom of God, if you give to the kingdom of God, your heart will also follow. If you give to evangelism, your heart will go into 
evangelism. If you care about, or if you put money into this church, you'll care about the things in this church. I spoke about previously how pursue, about how pursuing contentment and understanding that God will give you everything you need, that that's the opposite of the love of money. And that's what we need to guard ourselves against the love of money is to be content. But that's defensive, right? If you are content, that's defensive against the love of money. But if you want to go on the offensive and you really want to fight this love of money in your heart, Jesus tells us how to do it right here in this passage, to give, to give to the kingdom, to give to the things of God, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's nothing, there's no better way, at least for me personally, that I've grown in fighting against this love of money than to try to give and to be generous and to give to the things of God. And scripture talks a lot about this, and uh, specifically it talks about how to give. Um, I missed this, but I'll say it here. But giving to the kingdom of God will guard you from the love of money and will set your heart on eternal things. Once again, Scripture talks about this more and talks about specifically how to give, how we should be giving. And so I want to list out three of those um, to you tonight. How to give. Uh, Letter A, Scripture tells us to give regularly. To give regularly. 1 Corinthians 16, uh, verse 2 says... Um, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So Paul here, he's putting up an offering. There are some saints who are being persecuted, and they, they need money to survive. And so Paul, he tells the Corinthian church that on the first day of every week to put something aside, to gather something little by little, so that when he comes, he's not like, hey, look, where's the offering, man? But he's telling them, right, to give regularly. And so the principle that we have here is that giving requires planning. It requires budgeting, right? It shouldn't just be like, well, you know, I, get, I make this much money. Let's see how much I spend this month, and I'll just give off, you know, whatever's left over. That's how much I'll give. But no, Scripture says to give regularly. And don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm all for spontaneous giving, right? If you feel one Sunday, uh, we don't really have the offering plate, but you see that box and your heart is just compelled to give, you should give. If you see someone who's needy, whether they're here at church or on the street and your heart feels compelled to give, it's not necessarily something you plan, you should give. But the normal pattern of our life, the normal, uh, yeah, the normal pattern of giving should be planned. It should be regular. And so the tip that I'll give to you is really to, to take a look at this verse and, and to follow it, to actually to give weekly. Uh, I know for myself that this is incredibly helpful to fight against the love of money because having that weekly reminder that the things of this world are not going to last and the weekly discipline of investing in the kingdom really does have an effect on your heart. And so give regularly. Letter B, give cheerfully. Give cheerfully. Second uh, Corinthians 9 verse 7 said, each, says each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, when we think about giving, right, you, the act of giving should not be because someone is forcing you to, right? You shouldn't be compelled by external or from other people, right? No one should be forcing you to give, and you shouldn't feel that way when you give. But instead, you should be giving free, freely and cheerfully. 
And it should hurt, it'll hurt a little bit to give that money. But nonetheless, there's a joy that comes with giving. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give and to receive. And if this is not yet a regular discipline in your life to give to the church or give to others, I will say when you give to the kingdom of God with the right heart, uh, it really is thrilling to think about the money that you're giving and how that money will be used for the kingdom. It's, it's, it truly is a joy to give. Let her see how to give. God also calls us to give generously. To give generously. First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So Timothy, he looks at the people who are rich in this world, and guess what? That's pretty much every one of us. Remember, the standard of contentment is food and clothing, have more than that, you're rich. Even by today's standard, if you live in America, you're very likely, by worldly standards, you are rich. And so this passage is for us, and as verse 18 says, right, we are to be generous and ready to share. We are to give generously. In verse 19, it also says something interesting here. He says that when we give and when we are generous, we are storing up treasure They are storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. And so the principle here is that if you give to the kingdom and you're generous with your money, that you're actually investing it in the future and that you're storing up treasure for yourselves in the kingdom of God. Um, Randy Alcorn calls this the treasure principle. Um, the treasure principle, and I put this, the book cover up here because uh, it, was a, it was a very helpful book for Hannah and myself. We actually went through this during our premarital. It's a short book, concise book, very good book that Randy Alcorn wrote. But in this book, it's all about what he calls the treasure principle. He said that you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Of course, talking about money. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Uh, there's a little paradox here. In, in life, that if you try to hold on to your possessions, you try to hold on to your money in this life, you're going to lose it all. Once again, every single thing that you earn, every single thing that you own will either be squandered away or thrown into the dump. If you try to hold on to that, you'll lose it. But if you give and you're generous and you invest in the kingdom, you can send it on ahead and you'll be rewarded in heaven with an eternal inheritance. That's the treasure principle. Now we're getting to the, to the real question of how much should I give? <laughs> I think that's the real question that all of us struggle with is how much should you give? We see the principles here, right? To give uh, regularly, to give cheerfully, and to give generously. But how much should I give? Well, Scripture doesn't give an exact percentage but I want to make sure that we're defining our words biblically. And when I say to give generously, Paul actually gives us an example of what generosity looks like. And he gives the example of the Macedonians. In 2 Corinthians 
chapter 8, verses 1 through 7 says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And this is perhaps the greatest example of human giving in Scripture, the example of the Macedonians. Notice that they were in extreme poverty. That means the basic necessities in life, they were struggling. It was a struggle for them to eat. It was a struggle for them to have clothes on their bodies. They were extremely poor. And yet when they saw a need, they filled it. Verse 2 talks about their abundance of joy and in their extreme poverty, they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They gave despite their poverty. And it was so much that in verse 3, Paul says that they gave beyond their means. I don't know exactly what that means, but I imagine that they gave up food, right? They fasted. They instead, they, they decided, I'm not going to eat dinner tonight, but I'm going to give because someone is in need. They were giving so much that they were begging earnestly for the opportunity to give. And I imagine Paul said, no, 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 that's enough, right? You need to save something for yourself. You see, this is generosity. This is what giving generously is. Some of you have heard the phrase that you should give until it hurts. You should give until it hurts. And I, I'm definitely in favor of that phrase. I think it's a helpful one because I believe that it's applying what we see here in the Macedonians, that they gave sacrificially, that they gave even though it hurt. And for you tonight, even if you're not working, you're not making an income, I would still challenge you to give and to give sacrificially. Maybe what you can do is to give up, you know, going out to eat one night instead giving that away, the money that you would have spent. If you want to give regularly, even though you don't have that much, maybe instead of, you know, purchasing your five, six, eight dollar bova, you can save it instead and you can break it up into dimes and you can give that dime every single week to give regularly. And if you are earning income, you have some money, I would really challenge you to give sacrificially. Not just your spare coins, not just what's left over every month, but an amount that takes some sacrifice. Maybe that means you sacrifice going on that trip or that vacation, or you, you have to work for 10 more years, or not living so luxuriously, but I would challenge you to give sacrificially. And really, I mentioned that the Macedonians are, are the best earthly, best human example of giving. But if you continue in this chapter in 2 Corinthians 8, we see the ultimate example of giving in Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8 said, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, Christ was rich. 
He lived a perfect life of obedience, and he was completely righteous. He had a perfect relationship with the Father. And for each one of us, you were poor. You were poor. You were spiritually bankrupt. You had a debt that you could not repay because of your disobedience and your sin. But on the cross, when Jesus died for you, our accounts were exchanged. Where Jesus, he took your bankruptcy, he took your poverty, and he paid your debt. Every single penny that you owed, he paid for it by dying on the cross. But not only that, not only did he give, not only did he pay your debt, but Jesus also gave. He gave you his own righteousness. He gave you that righteousness so when God looks at you, he no longer sees you as poor, as the sinner that you are, but he sees you as having the riches of Christ. And you see that when we give, and we give generously, we follow the example of Christ because we have been given so much. And as we wrap up, once again, Christ, he's the ultimate reason why you should be content in this life. God, yes, he promises to give you food. He promises to give you clothing. He promises to give you what you need to survive. But he's given you so much more. He's given you Christ. He's given you salvation. He's given you citizenship in heaven. And so for us, we need to be good stewards of the money that God has given to us. Once again, to save for the future, to provide for yourself, to pay your taxes, to pay what you owe. Finally, to give to be like Christ and to be generous and to give for the kingdom of God. That is what it means to be rich toward God. And if you have more money after you do these five things, if you have extra, do whatever you want with it. All right? God, once again, we are free to, uh, to, to use our money as long as we are prioritizing the way that God calls us to use our money. You are free to spend that extra money how you wish. So yeah, you can eat, you can drink, and you can have that nice vacation. But as you do those things, remember in the back of your head that all those things are temporary. And our priority in this life is the kingdom of God. And so let's use our money in a way that honors him. Let me pray for us. We can close. Heavenly Father, uh, I pray that we would have an eternal perspective. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, remember that we are merely aliens in this life. Uh, that this is not our home, and help us to use our money in a way that honors you. And for us, help us to be generous as well. Help us to use our money in ways that helps others and that furthers your kingdom. We pray for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen. I had some discussion questions. Yeah, here we go. How does the love of money manifest itself in your life? And what, what needs to change to free yourself from the love of money? And then number two, which of the five biblical usages of money uh, do you want to grow in or are challenging for you? What are some practical steps uh, that you can take?